podcast of the year 2024 for our program and a very happy new year to all of you and all of my fellow panelists finally we are in the room together and thanks for nick for driving up from uh dunedin here to uh christ church and really appreciate that it's nice to see everyone uh, here uh today uh our program uh we want to start out with uh this joint statement that was released uh, from the, by the White House. It's a joint statement from the government of the, uh, government of the United States, Australia, Bahrain, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Italy, wow, Japan, Netherlands, New Zealand, Republic of Korea, Singapore, and the United Kingdom. This is about the, the uh, Houthi attacks in the Red Sea that is disrupting trade and shipping uh, in that area. So we'll try to uh, share our thoughts on those issues. Uh, and then later on, I'll ask my fellow panelists uh, to talk about what, are, what should we be looking out for 2024? What are the things that we may have discussed in our previous episodes? Um, and whether these are things that we still have to continue to keep an eye on for 2024. So without further ado, uh, let's get to this uh, uh a uh, statement from the White House uh, by signed by many countries about their concerns about the Houthi attacks. And by the way, this morning there's this report about this huge uh, Merck's uh, shipping container ship that uh, had to reroute yep. uh, because of the fear of Houthi attacks. So yeah. what do you guys take on that? I think it's a big deal, right? We are not that far removed from, what was it? Now it's four years ago when COVID first struck and the global supply chain went into went in, went into basic chaos and suddenly we realized how important it was that uh, you know certain areas of the world stay open and we are connected and all that. And was it last year or the year before where the Suez Canal had that the year before the Suez Canal had that that that, that tanker that got stuck at the Eva. Evergreen yes, ship. Yes, yes, that <laughs> one. Got stuck. The, the huge evergreen ship <laughs> and, got and, stuck. There. And we saw the impact that had on, on oil prices, on, yeah. on the inflation. And you just think about like post-COVID, post-pandemic, governments around the world have been struggling to keep inflation under wraps, struggling. Uh, central banks have been raising interest rates and all that. And just as we seem to be cresting that hill and we can see the end of a... Uh, end of the tunnel in terms of uh, inflation ri yeah rising interest rates and all that you have this yes and not only not only uh, uh, ships having to reroute all the major con uh, shipping companies have now announced that they will no longer travel through the Red Sea the Red Sea and the, the, the Swiss Canal route so they're going to divert everybody back down through the Cape, Cape of, of Good Hope yeah the Cape of Good Hope yeah, that's very expensive 30% yeah. Increase Longer, right? in travel time, you know, you're you're looking at right interest rates that inflate up. What? Uh, sorry, insurance that inflates what fifty, sixty percent to cover the risks. Your your New Zealand alone, we are at the end of the supply chain. Or, you know, the global supply chain. How how long is it gonna stock our Kim? You know, is it gonna take items to come and stock our Kmart uh, shelves and, and, and all that? And, and it's two two ways too as yep. well, right? It, mean, it also means to say that our exports yep. 
are going to be mm-hmm. affected significantly as well. So, so yeah, it's the safety of those trade lanes. And you, Orson, you're very much right to pick up. You're very much right to pick up on the issue of uh, uh, supply chain yeah. and and inflation. You know, considering that everybody's hoping that 2024 will be that's it for inflation, right? We move on. We're we're all hoping for for people who have uh, who have um, carrying mortgages. We're all expecting the <laughs> expecting the uh, interest rate to go down, and and, so, and and we don't realize how important it is because the impact that economics has on domestic politics, the impact that inflation has had on the elections mm-hmm. that we've seen in 2023. Name me a uh uh you know incumbent political party or government that's managed to stay in power through this whole inflation crisis that we've been... Not New Zealand. Not New Zealand. Definitely not New Zealand. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's the... Even even the Biden administration is challenged because of that, right? Yeah. I mean, the numbers are reflecting economic yeah. uh, issues as well. Yeah. Uh, Nick? Yeah, I think this is... If we step back, it's yet another reminder that we're at a transition point in international politics. And we can really trace this back to 2017 with Trump and so forth. But there's a whole series of things that have happened since then that are constant reminders that the so-called unipolar era is facing this transition, series of challenges. And while this is a serious challenge in of itself, it's, it's a micro challenge within a broader international system where we've had a whole bunch of challenges, including... Frankly, the, the Chinese challenge to the U.S. constructed international order, <clears throat> many other things that relate to that, <clears throat> including the Russian war in Ukraine. So you put it all together, it really needs our serious consideration as a uh, state that is uh, located geographically far from the action, and therefore we are we feel the waves down the, the you know, and so it really does suggest that um, there needs to be better attention to f- uh, positioning, really, mm-hmm. as, a, as a relatively small country. Um, and, um, you know, we kind of need to take on board the message that, you know, really this, the international system is really getting more destabilized. It's stressed. It's yeah, very, it's very stressed. stressed. It's very stressed. And yep. it may it may survive, and for all we know, 100 years from now, they'll look back and say, okay, this was a stress point which the international system, uh, US-based international system, you know, survived and thrived after that. But we shouldn't underestimate nor necessarily expect that uh, it will survive, certainly in the way it has been for the last 50 mm. years. And certainly, you know, what's happening in the Middle East uh, mm-hmm. with the Hamas-Israeli yeah. situation yeah. Uh, is a monkey wrench That's right. thrown into it, right? I mean, uh, June? Yep. Uh, you know, it brings to mind uh, some of the things that we spoke about a few episodes ago about us wondering how the Israel-Gaza conflict would play out. And we said correctly that, you know, Lebanon would possibly be another place. Yep. Iran would possibly yep. be another place. And we were right. What we didn't think about is the sea lanes. Yes. And it's interesting to see two things that are happening here. Is that the conflict actually spilling over into the sea, but it's become quite indiscriminate because we're also dealing with a non-state actor. It's also mm-hmm. been very indiscriminate about which ships and which you know vessels it's, it's trying to attack. Yeah. It doesn't care anymore if it's Israel or not. You know, it's just everybody. Every ship, every ship is seen yep. to be helping Israel, right? Right. And and, and and when you think about fifteen percent of the world's shipping lanes being choked 
at that point, then you know, you, this is a not so large. It's the, the Houthis have been there for a while, but they're not very large. Yep. But you know, it's also difficult to deal with them, and this is the nature of, of conflict when you deal with non-state actors. Non-state actors, actors that's right. You know, to the, there's, it's difficult to see the end point. And and, and and then the other thing is, of course, there are state actors that are supporting some mm, of these yeah, non-state sure. actors that yeah, complicates sure. it. Yeah. And these the state actors that are supporting these non-state actors have a particular position mm. in that conflict that is currently occurring in the Middle East. Mm. And in a way, it reminds us uh, uh, of the Somali pirates, uh, mm-hmm. but the slight but uh, significantly different in style because these Somali pirates are just intercepting. Right, but these guys are using drones and missiles yeah, and yeah, and things yeah. to to hit the ships. Yep. you know that the, the threat is significantly higher than these occasional ransom-seeking Somali pirates were in. During that time, it was the, the whole world came in mm. to let's say like, let's let's found a task force. How we how we how we patrol this? This is much more complicated than I, that. I think. There's also a broader question, and Nick did allude to that. It's like. While the Red Sea is a singular event that has repercussions in terms of the day to day access to to supplies to to items and all of that, we the, it's also playing out in this broader context of trade breaking down. Right, mm-hmm. the international or the global trading system is breaking down. You see protectionism between the U.S. and China. You see the the Europe. The European Union also starting to turn kind of inward, trying to, to to join join hands with the US to to put more pressure on on China and all that. And you have to ask the question: at the end of the day, what's the international trading system going to look like after this? Will it will it still exist in the in in the form that we know? Because you know, I'm sure it would have been in China's interest, in India's interest. In, in Russia's interest to speak out against what's going on in the Red Sea, but radio silence from all of them. Yeah, I'm, I, I think, of course, you know, when you think of China uh, as a large trading nation right now, they got to be hurt. Yeah. You know, they have to be hurting from that. But it's mired in very complex geopolitical situation. Like, yeah. it's kind of like for, if you're, I, I think, you know, I don't envy the, you know, the leader sitting in Beijing, you know, yeah. uh, uh, at this point, because which one do you do? Which one do you piss, piss off? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, you know, yeah. I mean, and the reality is uh, Xi Jinping even acknowledged that the Chinese economy is not in good state, yeah. you know, during his New Year's address, you know. So yeah. that, but they have to say something. They can, yeah. speaking of that, during the Som- Somali pirate thing, the Chinese participated yeah. in those that's, task forces. That's force. the thing. They, they participated in, task, in those task forces. So I wonder how, what they will have to do, you know? I mean, do you go and talk to your Iranian friends and tell them that stop supplying these weapons? Uh, or how do you do that, you know? You've, got, uh, you've already got an oversupply problem in China and the Chinese consumer market is not sticking in all the excess supply. You've got to send it somewhere. There's, a, there's, there's an article, Alex, that came out a couple of days ago about that. And there are, in fact, uh, Chinese... Um, uh, gray vessels, uh, uh, Chinese Navy vessels yeah. nearby that are patrolling but have refused to answer to the distress calls. And that to me, the NAN answer tells you a lot about what China intends to do with the Red Sea situation at the moment. Which is nothing. Nothing. Let it play out. 
But how? I mean, I mean, you're you're gonna eventually. It's gonna eventually. But hurt. yeah, it will be one of the Chinese ships that will hit in the future. This is just yet another example of globalization and the the complexity of globalization, right? So for the last thirty years or so, we've been used to a certain very liberal interpretation of globalization, yep. and this is the this is the very um, distinct and different version of globalization, which may very well be the shape of the future to come in the twenty first century, right? And these are the dilemmas. Uh, that China has to grapple with just as much as any other country and major power needs to. And we're beginning to understand that, look, the Chinese have their problems too, right? Uh, and they're very distinct and different in some respect from the United States. And uh, this idea that somehow the Chinese uh, only really need to focus on their domestic situation, well, they have to focus on that, but they also need to play the international game too. And mm -hmm. these are the dilemmas. Inaction cannot be anything more than a short-term policy. They're going to have to respond in some way. They're they either to. going to contribute to international order or they're not. And so this is it as might, much a test for them. Yeah, my, my, my guess is eventually they will gradually come out and do it, you know, uh, but but the way they would do it is probably very convoluted. <laughs> yeah, so this uh, would be like climate change, right? Eventually now, the Chinese have signed on to COP28. Yep. But, you know, it took a long time, mm. you know, so... There's this, it's a big bureaucracy too. And we've talked about this, this idea that, you know, it's, it's more than, it's in many respects an empire uh, that exists in the 21st century. And so things change uh, slowly. Yeah, and goodness it, knows it takes a long time in the States. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, wait until Trump comes back. Oh, yeah. You know, and everything, everything, another monkey wrench is thrown yeah. in everything, right? So, so I, I think what we're, Definitely, that's this is a, a, a big issue, and certainly for trading countries like New Zealand, our Southeast Asian, the Southeast Asian states, many of our trade goes through that area. Yeah, you know? I mean that added cost. So everybody's everybody's hoping, like uh, like Orson said, that the supply chain issues would have already gone in the past. Interest rates will be coming down, but now the added cost of going all across. You know, all around the Cape of Good Hope, increasing the cost. And uh, Neil, well, um, what this what this episode reminded me of is what we spoke about, or the phrase that Nick used a few episodes ago. I think it was our second episode where Nick used said trade and economics takes place in a strategic context, and this is the manifestation of that in every sense of that phrase. I mean, you're talking about a body of water which has 12% of global shipping and 30% of global containers go through it. Yep. Now, if you add an additional time for them to sail where they're supposed to, for a trading nation like New Zealand, that raises significant issues. It wasn't so long ago when you still had supply chain issues happening in China and across Southeast Asia, where shipping companies were telling New Zealand exporters that, look, we just don't have the containers available for you to send things out. Mm -hmm. And you could see the consequences of that playing out here how that affects our domestic politics and indeed the domestic politics of our partners in Southeast Asia, that's an interesting question by and of itself. But it's interesting to note that New Zealand actually signed up to the statement quite vigorously and supported it. And you had Judith Collins this morning in, uh, talking on Radio New Zealand saying, well, uh, we can't not be involved in this because we are a trading nation. Yep. It affects us quite significantly. We can't just see it play out and not play a role, especially considering that you've got 12% of New Zealand military personnel already stationed in Bahrain on a separate mission which looks at national shipping and national security. So 
Professor Stan, you and I sort of made an argument about burden shifting and, and some time ago, and it's it's in a way seeing that manifest, especially in a global context, is quite nice, especially from a small state perspective like ours. Mm-hmm. I think you know certainly I would I would expect that the EU and maybe going forward maybe NATO might be uh, also having their own statements with regards to this because if you look at the trade that is coming from that area, it really is Europe Asia trade. That is yeah. that yes. route is a Europe Asia yeah. route for sure. Yeah. You know, uh, it's not of course the Strait of Hormuz; it's on the Red Sea side. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, so in a way, if you if you look at oil, uh, maybe that pipeline is is okay. But then you have the container cargoes that are going through mm-hmm. the Red Sea. That is, uh, uh, you know, it's Europe Asia trade yeah. uh, going to Europe, going out of Europe, coming from Europe. To Asia, and um, you know, I, I, I'm maybe I don't know. I mean, uh, ASEAN might come out and say something, and, and and but they have to. But of course, ASEAN's the 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 geopolitics that is behind all this is really quite complex. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy as we see it, and and like I, like we said, you know, within ASEAN, the issues about the where they stand with regards to the Israeli Hamas mm-hmm. issue is is. It's a complex issue, right? I mean, China's position on the Israeli Hamas issue leads to it's kind of like what should we do, you know? Uh, uh, but they have to work it out eventually because uh, if it, this is an international law issue, mm. it's a it's a trading issue. It's, so it's, a, it's a common good. Yeah, it yeah. is. And, and Line, lines of shipping are common good. Yeah. You know, yeah. the entire world depends on it. No matter what what political color you are and what mm. what system you run in your country and whether you're friends with them or not at the end of the day if the if the shipping lanes don't keep open your country's gonna starve and die yeah and but the, the, but like i said though it's trade that even the concept of common good yes has to go through strategic thinking as well right i mean so that 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 essentially is what it is and you, you can know? see yeah. that complexity because if you see the, the states that have signed up to it so far at least uh, there hasn't been a single Arab state who signed up to that statement or said anything in this regard so far. And at least the... Bahrain has. Bahrain. Oh, Bahrain. of course. Bahrain. Well, I take that Bahrain back then. Um, but there should be more. Yeah. There should yeah. be more. But, 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 but of course, they've got their own geopolitics and their yeah. own complexities going on as to how do you... Where do you stand? Because you have the Israel-Gaza issue and yeah. we're superimposed mm-hmm. and affecting what the Houthis have been doing in the Red Sea. Uh, and that's another layer of complexity, I think. You know, we need to see we need to see India come in on this statement. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we need to see India come in on this statement. I, I, I actually wonder what China's play is because at the end of the day, if China has ambitions as it's been post, you know posturing to be the the regional hegemon that it wants to be, then it needs to step up, right? Because up till now it's been a free rider in terms of the security uh complex of, of, of the global system. So, you know, it doesn't contribute much to en- ensuring stability around the world. It doesn't contribute, you know, its its ships have been used to basically protect its own area. But if you want to be a real hegemon, you have to, you know, hegemonic stability theory, right? You have to provide some sort of pay the price, basically. That, that, but that calls into question whether, whether they actually want to. You know, yeah. I, uh, uh, I, I think the Chinese don't want to because they know the cost of being a hegemon is yeah. particularly high. Yeah. Having said that, though, um, it is very possible. It is very possible that 
there is a lot of uh, diplomatic shuttle going between Tehran and Beijing. Right, <laughs> it, right. is, it is possible because the, because the way the Chinese do it is oftentimes much more quiet, subtle, much right. more subtle. Yeah. You know, I mean, but then there's another monkey rancher. You know, China doesn't. China tells Iran, "Don't don't supply these guys." But hey, there's one in the neighborhood that would be a willing supplier. Yeah. North Korea would yeah, be happy yeah. to do that. Right. So how do you do that? You know, yeah. so so there's a lot of rogue, rogue quote unquote rogue yeah. actors. Maverick, the, Maverick yeah. actors. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Maverick actors yeah. in the in the in the in the state system yeah. that we have right now. That that how do you, where do you stop it? Right. Yeah. Where, I, how, I mean, these are all very good questions that underline the point that um, that China really is a, a, a challenger. It, it, these are complexities that come with the fact that China is a challenger to the United States and its international order. And there is no playbook necessarily for the Chinese. They need to kind of, in a sense, yeah, make, make it up as they go along, yeah. right? And uh, who would have thought that the Houthis would be shooting off, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> attacks, <laughs> you know, uh, even, even a few weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're kind of, you know, reacting, strategic interaction. But it also shows right? that, it also shows to. <laughs> For, for if China does have hegemonic design, it also shows you how messy it is, how That's difficult right. yeah. it is to control every actor. And, and you know what? <laughs> the Chinese may decide eventually that you know what we'll just we'll game for regional hegemony. Mm. It's too complex to do the global. Thing. Well, I, I I agree, and I, I I think Chinese calculations are global hegemony very expensive. Sure. You That's know, right. very they, expensive. They cannot right. afford. They it. will not do it. Yeah. You right. know, I mean, they'd rather free ride. Sure. You know, like, like what you said, and if they have been free riding for the longest time, yeah. and the free riding has actually made them rich yeah. Yeah. as a state. That's right. So why do you need to chip in and contribute to that that you so, cannot charge? So, so we were talking. Anything? We were talking off, you know, before we got onto the podcast about British hegemony, right? <laughs> the British Empire. Everything leads back to the British Empire. Yeah. It's all <laughs> right? their fault. The former, right? All former. Their, all the their former. Form, yeah. <laughs> so in in the nineteenth century, what you had was you had Global British hegemony of the seas. This is the classic hegemonic yeah, yeah. theory, right? Which yep. Krasner used in the 70s. Mm. But at the same time, in the European balance, it was a multipolar system. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, China's rise, I mean, it's a kind of com uh, a, a version or, or adds variety to understanding of, you know, so for example, in this case, US would be the regional supplier of global goods and the hegemon. In the region of the Indo-Pacific, China is, is, is multipolar or bipolar. Yeah. So there's some complexity there, which you know. Uh, yeah. Whether it's more stable, we don't know. That's right. We don't. Yeah, know. We don't know. But it seems like that for from from some of the the the, the so-called second major powers that are not hegemon, they, you know, they, China particularly looks at it on a more multipolar that they they hope it would be a more multipolar they want the sure. the mid east to be one pole they want the eu to be one pole uh, you know india one pole you know kind of yeah. like that whether that's more stable well, i don't know the, the chinese uh, have been saying since the 1980s that they they desire multipolarity uh, certainly at the structural level but, but in regional practice, hegemony. regionally, regional hegemony. It's, it's, it's really hegemony. Yeah, it's, it's, hegemony. it's really, it's really kind of like different plates. Yeah, right. Different. You have you have regional hegemons in yeah, various regions. Yeah, but the ability region. ability for China itself to attain regional hegemony is in question, right? Uh, yeah. Stephen Walt in in Harvard wrote about this a couple of months ago already. 
and and we've also talked about it uh, many times. The idea that the it's it's missed the boat in that in that window of opportunity to to assert itself as the regional hegemon. Like the conditions are not there because right now you've got uh, South Korea, Japan, who are essentially you know American bases who who given the rise of China see it as a threat and are actively arming themselves against that. You've got you know the ultimate wild card that is North Korea and you don't know what they're gonna do when they're gonna do it. You know, you you've got the states in, in, in Southeast Asia who who even though they know that they're small, they don't have much say against the have they are still balancing and hedging against Chinese uh Yeah, which is interesting and, and that your the the point about uh China's regional ambition and it brings us to our discussion prior to the recording about the contestation within China yes. of how it strategizes itself, right? A group, you know, uh, there there are a group of Chinese uh, leaders and elites that look at it as we should be a regional hegemon. But then equally strong is this very inward looking, yeah, you know? So, so I don't know what is the better option here. So if China really goes inward, like... Yeah. Like it's history, mm-hmm. con- you know, in the Manch- in the Qing Dynasty, in the Ming- Chinese history is replete with how- when it opened up and all of a sudden shut, shut up down. like a yeah. clam. Sure. So, if China shuts up like a clam, and just say, "No, we don't want anything to do with anyone else. We'll just go inward." Is that necessarily but, better for the region? But there is a third vision for China, right? That you could have what's going on under Xi Jinping, which are prior to really the backlash, right, where, uh, you know, Hu Jintao era, where, okay, quite open, engaging in the international system, uh, hadn't got to a point where you had all these frictions with multiple states. Mm-hmm. That that type of China, and then you had have what we are talking about now, which is a very inward-looking, but that there's also a possible third option, which is a kind of, without uh, being too naive about Deng Xiaoping's foreign policy, a kind of Deng Xiaoping-type understanding of Chinese foreign policy, which is a balance between the two. Now, who's to say what will eventually emerge? But these are all possible visions that have some basis in historical fact. The, 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 only, the only caveat I can add to that, though, is, is that under Deng Xiaoping and Hu Jintao, that China is not as big as the current China, that's right? right? Yeah. And, and, that's right. and then that's number one. And then there's also the assumption at that time is that is that you have the dominant, the dominant power and the hegemon yeah. uh, accepting that because you are very tiny, you're smaller than me. But when you are now 80% of my economy and likely going to be larger than me, it, that calls into question actually of what the reaction is by the United States. Because... In any strategic calculation, in any strategic interaction, there's actor A and actor B. Like, actor A does not act just because, Mm -hmm. on its own, it reacts to what actor B is doing, and what actor B is doing will affect actor A. So, so in a way, you know, China is in a... in The situation that China has is is also... The United States is worried about its own primacy. Right, the, the United States is definitely worried, uh, concerned that the order that has created American wealth, you know, in the in the in in the twentieth century yeah. and beyond, is under challenge by a, a a country that 
wants to also have a say yeah. in that system. So whether the inter then what should the Americans do and how do the how how do the Americans well allow this other big power now to have a you know not share really but yeah. to have some say because you know it's almost like saying if we all know the IMF yeah. is always is always led by a West European. Yeah. The World Bank is always led by by uh, uh, an American. American. All right? Mm. ADB always has Japanese presidents. Mm -hmm. Right? So it makes sense in the 1960s. It made sense in the 1970s. All the way until 2008, it made sense. Right? But with the global financial crisis and that happened, and China obviously is number two now, economy, it's not even G7. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, they even took in Russia to be the eighth member before China, where in China, obviously, is the... So, if you... That, that's the question. So, and the fear, fear of foreign, anything foreign, yeah. you, you know, I mean, is is very, very common thread. The, the reality is that both sides, the United States, as well as, as well as its alliance network, is going to have to adjust to China, and China has to adjust to the United States. Yes. Because yes. there's no way China can afford to, to go all... On its own. 1919 uh, America, you know, Woodrow Wilson's uh, failed attempt at the League of Nations and just clamp up and, yeah. you know, protectionism and just look up isolationism, right? Because think about it. The China can only build itself to wealth to a certain extent. Yeah, but you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how you can throw all the rules out the window if you look at if you look at Chinese history. I mean, you'd be surprised how they can clam up that fast. Who can explain cultural revolution? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's crazy shit. You know, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, boom, the the whole country is closed. You know, if you're if you're in China in the 1980s, you know, the market is really nothing. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, they can sure. close up, but will the regime survive the closing up? No. That's the, because if if we if we if we keep saying that the 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 CCP's main main objective is always uh, regime stability and and the continuance of of the hegemony of the CCP over the Chinese political system, then their inability to provide the promise of wealth and growth that has has led to basically China becoming the second largest economy and, and the support and this this Uber ethno nationalist support they have from 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 parts of the population. It's gonna have raise serious questions for the legitimacy of his his regime. It it could. So that raises this question of this Houthi situation in the Red Sea is actually an interesting experiment. Because yes. they actually now have a stake yeah. in what's happening in that region. It directly hit the trade between Asia and Europe. Yeah. And Asia, China's trade with Europe is large and many of them passes through that. Yeah. Right? So, so 2024 would be an interesting uh, uh, observation for us. With regards to, yeah, I mean, what, what does China do? And will it be, will it act even on its own interpretation yeah. of the international yeah. Yeah. order, yeah. Yeah. would it act to the benefit of the common good? Yeah. 
you know, and, and not just a, a, a particular good for, for itself. Well, you know, I, Nick, I, I think, ahead. ironically, what, what this is actually showing us, though, that the Chinese, um, if they act strategically, and it's every expectation they will, is that now they're going to rely on the Russians for oil even more, mm. right? So this uh, Spirit of Siberia um, line that's being developed, yep. I mean, they're just going to tilt. Uh, and so, you know, until very recently, people were thinking, okay, Putin is now really in China's hands because he's increasing dependence on China. But now it appears that actually the Chinese need the Russians. Oh, they, they <laughs> even more so. This is like a oil, yeah. this is like a, a a great white shark and a remora. <laughs> you know, I mean, they it's a commensal relationship. Yeah, you know, you know that. You know, they because in a way their 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 world view is that if they're together, then it's a counterweight for the U.S. Yeah, you know, it's like again one of these even Nixon used yeah. to think that they can counterweight yeah. with, with with Russia. So 2024, interesting things that we can see. Yes. Which is a good uh, 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 move to that next topic that we want to talk about. I just want to go around quickly in the panel uh, and to ask my fellow panelists, what should we be watching out for for 2024? Uh, Jun, you go ahead. No, interestingly, two days ago, Manila's ambassador to the U.S., Manuel Romaldez, said, we're all wrong because the flashpoint is not Taiwan, it's South China Sea. Yeah. And he might not, be, he might not be far from the truth, uh, uh, as yeah. we've seen in the last three months. We've been saying that yeah. <laughs> in yes. our yeah. program. Yes, right. We've yes. been saying that in our program. In, in the past three months, there has been escalations mm -hmm. in, in that area, and we've talked extensively, I think, about this. And uh, we've said that, uh, well... You know, for, for, for China, this is not new. This is part of the larger set of strategies always when it finds itself in a, in a kind of difficult position. It escalates yep. it yep. Uh, to change the, the balance and flow events. For the Philippines, it doesn't help that it's also done many things to further <laughs> escalate the situation. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, my interpretation of the Philippine position is this is what you do when you don't have a lot of choice. Um, you know, you strengthen the partnership with the United States, with the EDCA sites. Yep. You also kind of be have an open, transparent process of resupplying what we pass for uh, presence in there. That, <laughs> that, the, um, the, the barge. The rounded barge <laughs> as Sierra Madre. And uh, the Chinese have copied a strategy. They're also broadcasting that a couple of days from now, Philippine ships are going to resupply. We're going to intercept them. And so it's an ongoing process of cat and mouse game. Cat and mouse, mouse game. And, and the Philippine position as well is it's not helped by the fact that not one ASEAN nation is supporting the Philippine position, yep. even uh, after the 2016 uh, arbitral tribunal decision. Yeah. And so, if you're the Philippines, what what, what do, do you do? do? Yeah, right. Yeah. In fact, the 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 escalation in 2024 has been taken uh, a bit more seriously than usual by by ASEAN by issu issuing a statement uh, yesterday, mm -hmm. three days ago that. Um, uh, well, as most ASEAN statements are on these things. Uh, slanting towards the vague, but it did say three important things. One is ASEAN doesn't think that the solution is, is bilateral. It should be multilateral and so therefore pushes back against China's attempts to solve the conflict bilaterally. bilaterally. It also in a, in, a, in a sense alluded to uh, its uh, disappointment with the Philippine actions that further escalates the, mm. the conflict, but it also fell short of condemning uh, China, China as well, as largest well. trading partner. What's for, what's the for Philippines' calculation in 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 pursuing these uh, antagonistic 
from from certain point of view antagonistic actions. If you think about second from a shawl, yeah, that's our last spot in there. If you don't do it this way, you lose it. Eventually. You lose it. That's just how you lost the other parts of mm-hmm. the, 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 the cleans. And right. so, if you don't, if you don't do it, and if you don't establish a more permanent presence, and China is so irritated about the fact that we might or we might be smuggling materials in there to build a the permanent yeah. structure. Just how that's like how they yeah. did it, artificial islands. Um, that's what you do. But you how how, how much of it is also Marcos trying to seem tough? Not seeming tough, but really it's part of this kind of 180-degree turn from Duterte to the Duterte era yeah. of appeasing China into estab- re-establishing, certainly, uh, ties with, with the United States. I think in the Philippine cal- part of the Philippine calculation also is, is that, okay, uh, the Duterte six years have not really changed Chinese attitude. Let's try the other one. <laughs> you know, essentially that's what it is, right? I mean, what choice yeah. did the Philippines have? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it really doesn't have much yeah. choice. And, and this is the relationship that we actually got get something out of. Yeah. Um, the six years of the Chinese cozying up hasn't really mm. done much yeah. for us. Um, over $30 billion of promised aid. And then the convergence of it, the interesting yeah. Increasing convergence. Increasing scam centers in, in Manila. <laughs> yep. You know, and, then, and all the convergence of it is just it falls into all this issue about Taiwan contingency. So it works for, you know, if you're <laughs> the American military strategist, it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Christmas came early. Christmas came early. <laughs> That's right. You know, and so we can now have EDCA without mm. even asking, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that made it really easy. Let's move on. Uh, Neil. Uh, what I'm looking forward to in 2024, or what I'm watching rather, uh, we mentioned India in the podcast in this episode earlier, and we've... Um, We've we've spoken about it in previous episodes as well. It's clearly had a big year last year in terms of foreign policy. That euphoric uh, Modi visit to America, which really sort of uh, turned a page, some argued, in, in India-U.S. relations. Then India hosted BRICS summit. But I'm, interest, I'm interested to see how it keeps positioning itself as events in the Indo-Pacific take place, because it clearly still is the flavor of the month. It was, I mean, it, it had that designation, I would argue, for the better part of the last year. And it wasn't. It, it it was just last week where the Indian Foreign Minister was again in Russia, trying to upgrade India-Russia ties as well, and talking about the special and privileged partnership that they've got. Strategic um, autonomy. Strategic <laughs> autonomy, and, and I think I think I, I suppose you know uh, on one end you have India's strategic autonomy going on and, and how it's positioning itself as a regional p- power at least. On the other end, you've got uh, elections taking place in South Asia in India's immediate neighbourhood. Again, yeah. in the shadow of the India-China rivalry, because India still views South Asia uh, as its own immediate neighborhood, and China is still certainly active in the Maldives and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, it's, it's upgrading ties with Bangladesh, which India is watching very carefully. And then India also has New Zealand diplomats talking about a trade deal. So let's see how all of that pans out and, mm-hmm. how, and how New Delhi essentially positions itself going forward in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, I think it'll be quite interesting to see if the bet on India is still on. <laughs> yes, I think... I think uh, you know, it's 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 what we argued earlier, Professor Tan, that I'm, I'm still not sure if that bet that the U.S. has placed on India is going to pay off in the way that, that the U.S. wants it to. And and also, uh, I'm really quite curious, what happened to all those investigations Indeed. about the accusations well, of these uh, state-sponsored... Uh, assassinations. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's interesting yes. to note this, this the, the, the timing of this Russia visit. <laughs> You know, yeah. the, 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 this, this visit by the foreign minister to Russia took place in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. making that yeah. indictment That's public. That's right, that's mm-hmm. right. 
And That's now, right. whether, whether, whether this upgradation of ties with Russia or, or this positioning that, well, we're not, we, we're not necessarily sort of letting Russia sort of going cold that, on that relationship, what signal does that, change, that, does that tell to the US in the aftermath of all this? Yeah. Of certain points of contention, uh, because it's, it's not just the state-sponsored assassinations. If we look at um, the US positioning in uh, South Asia on nations like Bangladesh, for example, they're completely at odds with India. Because the U.S. has been very active uh, recently, criticizing Bang- the the incumbent government in Bangladesh for not holding a free and fair election, for human rights violations, for clamping down on the opposition, and India is quite hesitant because the one thing that India certainly desires is a stable neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yeah. so you do have points of difference in that in, the, in that relationship. Yes, the element of China may have certainly for now uh, indicated that both sides are willing to work through those differences, but. How far do they go? Yeah, it'll be in, interesting to see. In, in a way, uh, uh, India does, uh, despite the fact that we here in New Zealand keep on talking about independent foreign policy, I think India is mm. the epitome of that. Yes, yes. You know, I think I think it plays yeah. it more yeah. uh, uh, better, and I, I I like the term strategic autonomy. autonomy. Yep. You know, yeah. hey, Nick. Yes. How about you? Yeah. What so are you watching for um, in 2024? I'm tracking very closely the Russian Ukrainian situation, uh, which, as you know, has been a big focal point for international politics in the last two years. Um, I do think if you look at the situation objectively, um, it's going to be a situation where, unfortunately, justice may not prevail in the sense that I don't think many people would uh, not side with the Ukrainians. Uh, However, if you look at it objectively uh, in terms of manpower, munitions, the Russians simply have the broader base. They have the capability to actually carry on a self-defeating war in many respects for a long time, and the Ukrainians are bearing the costs, while at the same time the U.S. alliance system, while they've stepped up for the last two years, mm-hmm. simply don't have the capacity to back the Ukrainians to the degree that they can actually bring about a decisive victory. Mm-hmm. So for the next year, we're going to see a dance, so to speak, or a situation where there has to be movement towards some type of resolution. We're not sure exactly what the resolution will look like, so we'll, you know, that's something I'm going to be looking at very closely, and it has all kinds of implications for the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. right? Because the Russians and the Chinese, as we've discussed earlier, are getting closer, uh, also, uh, the Indians will then have to take a close look at the relationship. Uh, ASEAN itself will then have to reassess, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's not impossible that actually the Russians somehow get away, um, well, literally with a situation of using force to achieve goals that leads to an outcome that mm-hmm. this ties into the broader discussion we had on the international order in the 21st century. Yep. That if the Russians somehow manage to actually negotiate, in effect, a draw where the outcome is favorable to them to some degree, you know, this has implications for the international system in the 21st century. So, mm. it, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, and also the Taiwan issue, right? And you mean the thing, the thing, the thing, for, the thing about the Ukraine-Russia situation is, is that uh, it's an issue of stamina, of support in the Western capitals, yep. you know, and you can see that, particularly in the United States with the, with the likelihood of uh, uh, I mean, the elections coming yeah. up, it's becoming a hot topic. I mean, where yeah. did the United States continue to support it? Yeah. Uh, and then how does NATO, you know, there are, there, 
to me, it's all black marks everywhere. You know, yep. uh, it's a black eye for NATO if it ended <laughs> up, if it ended up uh, uh, the Russians gaining sure. something. You know, I mean, mm. so this aggression has not. While it is not a yeah. complete victory for they're Russia trying. as they're such, but the fact that whatever territories that they have occupied will likely stand, yeah, and and Ukraine continues to be the, you know, it it continues to be the one that lost out in all yeah. this. Yeah. So, so know? the question then is, how can the U.S. and the European Union somehow pull a strategic, vic- well, a, tr- a strategic draw or compromise of some kind out of the bag? And I. I I, I would come back to this idea of somehow Ukraine needs to be part of the Western international order. Well, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Kissinger yeah. even alluded to that, yes. that. Now that you've armed it to the hilt, you yeah. better keep it in, 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 right. in, in, in yeah. touch. But, yeah. but even that is not necessarily an easy thing for the EU to act on. That's right, mm-hmm. because they're going to have to rebuild to Ukraine from scratch. A lot of the country is basically in you know ruins. And so it's about financial resources and... Don't be surprised, actually, if the Chinese think about investing in Ukraine. <laughs> you know I mean? Well, we don't know that. Uh, maybe. But again, it's that rebuild is expensive. That's right. Mm-hmm. That rebuild is expensive. And I, yeah. everybody's strapped for cash sure. this time around. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not where in these countries are can write blank checks. Yeah. The United States just hit the other day a notorious uh, historic mm-hmm. high of Trillions and trillions and trillions. Yeah. It, it broke a new record in its national debt. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, in so the United States, if the Republicans come back with a vengeance, they have no appetite mm. for any of that. Yeah. You know, they have no appetite for any of that. So, the American money's America, all, go- money's all not, going to Israel anyway. So it's not going to flow. It's not going to yeah, flow. Yeah. It's not going to flow as yeah. easily. And and uh, all countries are. You know, UK is not in a position to do yeah. any much more after even. You know, just a billion, a few billions for the H, H high speed two railway. Yeah. They didn't even want them to do it. So, yeah. I mean, you know, e- even more so, it then suggests that somehow this Ukraine situation is not necessarily going to be resolved in a situation in a way that is optimistic. everybody's happy. Mm. Yeah, I think everybody's not going to be yep. happy. Yeah, mm. uh, but including Ukraine. Well, definitely, <laughs> Ukraine. <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah. Zelensky's having an election soon, right? Indeed. Is he going into election, Zelensky? Election on the international law. I don't know. Yeah, they yeah. haven't called it. Yet. Oh, okay. No. So I think that would be quite yeah. interesting, anyway. So, lots of elections happening everywhere, uh, and you know, Indonesia's one. Taiwan. Indonesia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'll let the Orsa talk about Indonesia first. So, what I'm looking for is actually the whole. Israel, Hamas, and its impact on Southeast Asia. Uh, we know how ethnically, religiously diverse Southeast Asia is, and forty percent of actually forty, forty-two percent to be exact of Southeast Asia, of Southeast Asia's population is Muslim, and you have the whole gamut of reactions from the ASEAN states, right? On the extreme end, you've got Malaysia and Anwar, who's banned the Israeli tankers from from coming to uh, docking in Malaysian ports. He's stood up and he's condemned them. He's publicly gone on a phone call with the military leader of Hamas and 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 they even gone so far in freaking Malaysian primary schools to have a Hamas day where 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 teachers dress up as and, and the kids dress up as Hamas terrorists basically and they parade around. Mm. It is Malaysia. It is Malaysia, but 
you have that extreme, and then on the other end, you've got the 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 west more western states of uh, ASEAN like uh, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, who have radio silence about the issue because they've got no no interest no interest yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, and then yeah. in the middle of all that, you've got a country like Indonesia, which you know, as I've mentioned before, has over the past decades, steadily, progressively stepped towards Islamist conservatism. Ex- I would even argue Islamist extremism in certain parts of, of, of Indonesia. And in what? Today's the sixth. So in five weeks, they are going to election. All three presidential candidates have come up and stated that they are in full support of the Palestinian people, but they have stopped short of saying that they are going to support Hamas. But whether they can afford to do so with the rising religious tension in 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 Indonesia at the moment is is a big big question because they a couple of weeks ago they had this huge rally in Jakarta for the Palestinian people and what ninety percent of it even though it was supposed to be an interfaith thing ninety percent of it was were Muslims in Sulawesi two weeks ago they had a huge uh, riot breakout between. Uh, pro-Palestinian protesters and a pro-Israeli Christian evangelical group. And that is the exact worry that these presidential candidates have, that you know the, the really tenuous, fragile social fabric of Indonesia is going to be torn apart by, by, by this whole Hamas issue. Because unlike in, in, in Malaysia, where clearly if you're not Muslim and you're not Malay, you don't have much say, Indonesia is a secular constitution, a secular state where they have taken pains over the years to try to keep Islam at bay or Islamization at bay. And now it's not working. So I am really looking forward to see, you know, once the once the election ends and, and you know, right now I think Prabhu and uh, Jokowi's son is leading at 42% to 24% and 21% of the other two tickets. But if the, if they do come to power, what sort of decisions do they make in terms of how do they express their support for the Palestinian people? Because the Indonesian voters will want to see them do something about it. Jokowi can sit by and not say anything because he knows he's he's leaving office soon. He'll just say, you know, it's a issue for the next next uh, presidency. So the added complication there is that that uh, uh, Orson just pointed out is is that the domestic politics is driving this, and this is an event that is far from the shores of Indonesia, you know, but has implications to Indonesia. There's the secondary effect of that is is that American support for Israel position and how that would affect U.S. Indonesian relations, mm-hmm. you I mean, know. I mean, so, so I mean, it's not so. There's too many moving parts now. There's a lot of moving parts, like. like like when the Hamas, Israeli Hamas thing happened, all of us in our previous program did say that this is a monkey wrench in this whole situation. Now it really makes the whole geopolitics of 2024 much more complicated because, you know, the actions of Hamas, clearly a terrorist action, and now but Israel's movement into Gaza... It stepped over the line. Yeah, it's another issue. Yeah. And then American support of Israel is in contrast to other people's con- con support of Israel. Oh my gosh, this is a mess. And, and, and yeah. it's, it's not only that, because we got to remember that in Philippines and in Thailand, there are 
Muslim, Muslims. That's Muslim right. insurgents. Yeah. That's right. There are. There are. They're separatists. They're yeah. separatists. They're all separatists. separatists. Yeah. Yeah. Southern and, Thailand and, 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 and Southern and Philippines. And their cause is the same cause as the Palestinian cause. So if if things don't, if the Israel Hamas doesn't doesn't work out properly, you know what? Where does Indonesia? What does Indonesia do with 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 Thailand? Yeah. And and the the, the Muslim insurgents in the south. Well, the last the last time that Indonesia was destabilized by the Asian financial crisis, the ethnic Chinese community got the yeah. bad side of that. Yeah. You know, so racial tensions always act up. You know, uh, so something to watch for. Uh, Mindanao was only what autonomous region only two years ago. Yeah, this is the new autonomous region. Yeah, the, the new autonomous experiment failed. And new, new. New, new. new, new. Yeah. New, new autonomous region. So how's, how long is that going to keep stability yeah. as well? Yeah, Mindanao is an interesting place to think about because you also have to realize that many of the Muslim separatists in the South were also trained in the Middle East. That's right. As yeah. Philippine government scholars. They, they, they do. <laughs> and which eventually <laughs> led, of course, the they, they, they separation they from do. the they largely do. Catholic Philippine state. Yeah, they do. So something to watch out. Thanks, uh, Orson, for bringing that up. That's a very, very complicated thing yeah. you know and again it it throws ASEAN into the <laughs> into right. the whole thing again. Yeah. what right. happens to ASEAN what happens yeah. to ASEAN yeah, yeah what happens yeah. to ASEAN right. uh, well for me uh, I'm actually flying up to uh, Taiwan uh, um, this week to observe the election one week from today is uh, Taiwan's presidential election and also legislative elections so uh, at the moment um, the leading uh, the incumbent party candidates are the ones that are, are, are leading. Uh, it will be quite interesting to see how China reacts to that. The, all sources said that it's going to be a close election, but the Democratic Progressive Party is more than likely to maintain the executive branch, mm -hmm. uh, although it's the legislative branch that's going to be tricky, uh, that there's the likelihood of a divided government. In other words... Um, the very, very likely that the the Democratic Progressive Party will lose its majority, mm -hmm. and a coalition of the of the KMT plus the Taiwan People's Party is likely uh, will be able to to hold the majority. Um, and there are implications all over uh, with regards to uh, cross-strait relationship. Uh, and relationship with the United States. Uh, but also, I think there is a bit of focus right now on the internal uh, issues within Taiwan uh, because, um, you know, the TPP, the, the, the third political party, uh, uh, Taiwan People's Party, is very, very much concerned with the more local issues like inflation, yep. employment for the youth, stagnant salaries, expensive housing, housing. you know, so many that that third party is a party that is, it doesn't talk too much about the the uh, uh, the unification independence issue. Uh, it is more local, you know, looking at the you know the economy issues that are affecting the average voters, and that's why it has an unusual support from the young mm -hmm. voters, the youth voters. So there's a lot of speculation about what's you know, how, how that election is going to pan out. But it seems at the moment that DPP is likely to hold on to the executive branch but lose the legislative branch, which creates a 2000-2008 scenario where mm -hmm. it's a divided government in Taiwan. Uh, be quite interesting to see, though, what it means for Taiwan-Japan relation, Taiwan-US relation, and Taiwan 
cross-strait relation with, with, with China. So yeah, uh, in a week's time, we'll know who that is. And uh, you know, if I, uh, maybe we can chat uh, during that time and uh, uh, while I'm in, on the ground yep. yes. uh, in Taiwan. For, foreign correspondent. Yeah, foreign <laughs> correspondent. You know, there you go. So with that, uh, as you say, uh, we were very blessed uh, last year to have been able to come together and start this program, The Views from Down Under. We were also quite lucky. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, having five of us together look at different angles of uh, of uh, a particular issue allows us to get a, broad, uh, a much more, uh, a more complete view, a broader mm -hmm. view of it. And we'd have to say and pat ourselves in the back, we have been right in many <laughs> of our, we have been quite, quite lucky and quite, Accurate, you know, within, you know within two standard deviations, uh, <laughs> quite correct about our predictions of uh, uh, what's happening, why these things are happening. So, I, um, for our listeners, thank you again for supporting us, for listening to us, and uh, it's fun for us to be coming together to chat about these because this is a topic that is really close and dear to our heart. Mm -hmm. And as as academics and educators, you know, we find we find it sharing our our. Our expertise, so to speak, you know, we're we're not always correct, uh, but we're not always wrong either, you know. So, so it's that's that's the part. So it's really fun to do so, and I hope you continue to to support us by listening to us uh, and spread our program to other friends and families that think you think that maybe may find this program particularly helpful. Again, a very happy New Year to all of you. And thanks again for listening to Views from Down Under. And we look forward to 2024 in bringing more episodes to you guys. Have a good day.